صباح الخير جود مورنينج دي ليسنز يو ليسنينج تو راديو 3 سي ار اون 855 Palestine Remembered is Australia's only English language radio program that is totally dedicated to Palestine. We'd like to welcome those listening on 855 and those that will join us on podcast at 3cr.org.au. Thanks for joining us. Stay with us and enjoy the episode. Bringing you the news and views and the untold side of the Palestinian struggle for freedom from a Palestinian perspective. Good morning, Rob. How are you? Mate, I'm very well, very well indeed. I've been enjoying a little bit of the sunshine, so it's been great. What about yourself? I am fantastic, mate. I'm very excited. We had the world's newest mashney into the house today. I'm not a pet person, but my daughter got a brand new cat, so we're pretty excited in there. This is phenomenal. It's, it's a very good looking cat. And because I've known you for so long, you have been a very anti-pet person. So this is a huge thing. Congratulations. It's a huge step. Um, just it's just another entity for my wife to look after, other than me and the kids. And <laughs> Rob, but excitingly, we've got an international, another stellar Palestinian woman joining us, Amira Nimrawi. Good morning, Amira. How are you? Morning. I'm all thanks. How are you? Really, really well. We're both very well. Welcome. Amira, you're talking to us, Amira, from Italy with an Australian accent, and you're a Palestinian. Actually, I'm calling you from London. London with an Australian accent. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I like it. Yeah. Like every Palestinian, you've got your own Palestine story. Can you take us through your Nakba and its relationship to you and how you end up where you are? And then we'll go into Balari after that. So I guess I'll start with my father. Uh, he's, he's a Palestinian refugee that came to Australia in his early 20s. Uh, my dad is from a tiny village just outside of Hebron called Haras. And uh, he grew up there, I think, until he was around 13 or 14. And at around that age, he was starting to become more politically active and involved. And um, for, for, for reasons that aren't very clear to me, it's not really a subject that he talks about openly. Um, but he did need to leave. And it was sort of connected to the fact that he was involved in organizing uh, a protest, although that's that's what they said at the time. And apparently that was something that they were trying to do to separate children from their families. So today we have the issue of children being incarcerated, um, you know, I guess, without cause. Taken away from their families and all of that area. Exactly, yeah. to, se- to separate them, to traumatize them. But um, it was always just something that was discussed um, from that side of the family that because fortunately, at that time and still today, to an extent, we have quite a lot of land. So my, my grandparents and my father's side of the family come from a falah family, I guess you could say, where we, we live off the land um, and we would rear the land at that time. Not so much nowadays, it's mostly for our own personal use. But because of that, it was just, there was no way that the family would leave with him. So he went off to our man where he had an older brother that was married and had a family there. Mm-hmm. Um, finished his schooling in the Anroa school that was there. Then in his early 20s, arrived in Australia as a refugee sponsored by his other older brother that had already gone across to Sydney. So my mother is Australian. So really my Nakwa story centers around my father's, I guess my father's history and 
the influence that his life and his activity has had on my life. However, having said that, my, my mother really embraced the culture and she's an artist, especially, I guess, from an artistic point of view, but, but definitely from a cultural point of view. So we grew up in a Palestinian house without question. So she's Palestinian for sure now, through and through. Yeah, there's just, yeah. And she, even there's a story where we were in uh, Amman a couple of years ago and she was wearing a thorb and we were going to enter, I think, the Darish Romani in the center of town. And they, my cousins were trying to sort of usher her in without having to pay the extra 50 dinar. And um, they sort of stopped her because she's blonde and <laughs> quite fair. And sort of like, what's this woman in this thorb and trying to sort of sneak in as a local and uh, she's like, no, 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 I'm a Palestinian, I'm from Khalil, I'm from Kharas and whatever. And they were just so like amused by the letter. <laughs> so definitely through and through, she's, she's a Palestinian. My parents met and I started my life in, uh, in Sydney. So the first six years of my life, I was based in Sydney, where by that stage, my father had been quite instrumental in starting up, um, I guess, the first sort of Palestinian... Um, I don't know. I don't know how you say it in, in English, but it was the, he started the Rabta in uh, Lakemba. So it was sort of the Palestinian community in Sydney yeah. would get together. Community organization, and organize, yeah. Exactly, um, organized events, and um, certainly they were quite politically active um, in the late seventies and early eighties to the nineties. And uh, so that they were my formative years. I mean, I went to my first protest in a pram, and and it's just something that I've never known anything other than. The, the whole story of Palestine. Um, my father's story is one that I've had to draw out from him over time. Um, there are certain things where he had, when he came to Australia, you know, he started working really hard in the railways and sort of, you know, over time he'd worked his way up. He eventually got his um, citizenship so that he could go back to Palestine and finally see his family um, who he hadn't seen since he'd left, left Jordan. You know, there was a series of events where he was um, arrested and no one really knows what happened during that time. But his mother, who he was very close to and um, I guess had worked so hard to get to go and see her again, actually passed away while he was um, in prison. And the sort of the typical Arab hospitality and not wanting to disappoint um, and breaking bad news ever so slowly when he finally did get out and get home. Um, apparently the Australian government intervened and he was able to, to get home to the village. No one told him when he first arrived. So it's sort of, his history is just sort of one that I can only surmise as layer upon layer of different types of trauma um, in which he, he never told us that. I only found that out when I went for the first time at 18. Um, to Palestine and, and, you know, had the opportunity to sort of meet and sit down with my aunties. So, yeah, we, we were based in Sydney up until six. And then um, we moved up to the Blue Mountains where for, for me, from sort of a personal point of view, I'd gone from a very multicultural community, a very uh, connected Palestinian community, one that was very active. And, and even by that age, I was very aware of what was going on back home you know and this is the language that we used it wasn't you know what's going on in Palestine it was back home that's how dad spoke about it that's how I spoke about it. it's how we all spoke about it so I was already very connected not just to the cause but also to the idea that I had family there that we have land there that you know these stories that dad did speak of of his childhood 
you know, with the donkeys and the, the um, olive trees and the fruit and just, you know, this almost idea. Different world, isn't it? Different world to yeah. here. Childhood and also just different to there now, you know, when I go back and I sort of look around and see that, that, you know, there's now a few generations that have never known that type of life over there. Um, their existence has been one, you know, completely removed from that. So those days have, have you know, gone completely. So, yeah, so I always had a curiosity and I was always very connected. I think also to an extent growing up in a community that wasn't so multicultural in the Blue Mountains, I, you know, tried really hard to kind of find my space. Um, and there were certain incidents along the way where, you know, I had so many kids in diaspora have the same story where they're at school and they're eating um, chubbas or Lebanese bread with zater and the kids are like making fun of them and oh what's that and so you know I kind of I didn't it's not until I was an adult that I looked back and started to sort of understand some behaviors that I developed as coping mechanisms mechanisms where I didn't eat at school I stopped eating at school even if it was just a normal Vegemite sandwich I'd wait until I got home because oh. of this sort of um, anxiety around being the other being different and then when I got to high school there were people that were aware, and I have to say, I did go to a very open-minded high school where the teachers, especially from the history department, were very pro-Palestinian, were not afraid to, wow. to sort of talk about that. Yeah, and they were very excited, you know, that my sister and I were at the school. So that was a, that was sort of a nice, safe space where they, they always wanted to hear stories and um, asked us about it in front of the other kids. But at the That's same magnificent. time... That's such a good thing. Oh, it, was, it was great. It's a very special school, to be honest. Um, that's why I'm an advocate of public ed education as well. And I remember asking my dad saying, you know, I want to go back home. I want to meet everyone and I want to stay there for a, a good period of time. I want to learn. And he was like, yes, okay, okay, dad, you know, go, it's okay and whatever. <laughs> and, you know, I needed six months to save up and I was adamant that I was going to do everything by myself. And I think he just didn't think that I would do it. So I, mean, I remember the night before I left, he's like, you know, are you sure you want to go? And, you know, it's not the same as here. And started backtracking. And I was like, what's going on? Like, I'm literally just about to jump on a plane for the first time by myself, go to Palestine for the first time by myself. My Arabic isn't the strongest. I could understand quite a lot, but to speak, you know, I was, um, I was not fluent at that time. And, uh, you know, he starts backtracking and, and uh, freaking out a little bit. And I'm like, no, khalas, like it's time. I need to go. So anyway, I went off and uh, it so happened. So it was 2003. So I think it was the beginning of the second intifada at that time. And certainly when I was there, I had nothing to compare it to except for the stories from my, my father and my family that had been um, backwards and forwards over the years. And so it's winter as well when I get there. It's very sort of dark and bleak. Actually, the first time I got to the, the checkpoint um, between Jordan and Israel, I, um, I was denied entry. Apparently, they'd let too many Palestinians in that day, so they weren't letting anyone else in. I have an Australian passport, by the way. I don't have a Hawaii or a Palestinian identity, you know, so it should have been fairly easy to an extent. Uh, my cousin had arranged for me to enter with, uh, a cousin who had Israeli number plates, who was based in Jer Jerusalem. So that was supposed to make it easier. But that first day we were denied entry. And uh, so we went back to Amman, stayed the night and then went back the second day. And, you know, I guess you can imagine as an 18 year old um, who 
to an extent had lived a pretty sheltered, you know, typical Arab upbringing in that, you know, you stayed at home. I didn't even get to go to camp or anything like that. I'm now standing here. It's a big jump. <laughs> yeah. Checkpoints. And uh, they start asking me questions and sort of interrogating me. And, you know, then I get passed from one soldier to the next soldier and finally end up with this. And I get separated from my cousin as well, by the way, who, you know, has all of the documentation to enter, but he goes through the same thing, you know, out of the corner of my eye. And in those days, it wasn't an air conditioned, closed sort of, you know, lounge space that it is now. It's just sort of like almost like a bus stop. Um, with like a little bit of shelter but there wasn't that much shelter and even though it was winter quite still quite warm at that time so there were people just sort of standing out in the sun um, old lady standing there's no chairs you know you just kind of take into the side of, of almost like a you know a road there's like little huts kind of thing that are the the offices and then finally this young guy comes and he's got this American accent and he's like trying to trip me up he's like so you know why are you here? And I tell him I'm come to visit my family, blah, blah, blah. And then he's like, but you said that you're, you know, you're about to, you're, you're, you're studying. I'd been accepted at that stage into nursing um, for the following year. But at that stage, it was, it was obviously summer in Australia. And I was like, yeah, but it's like summer holidays. And he's like, oh yeah, right. Okay. You know, and he was probably only a year older than me. And I just remember at the, that time thinking, this is so weird. There's this 18 year old American guy who's like, asking me questions on my own land, you know, I'm trying to, all I'm trying to do is to get in to see my family for the first time, you know, he's trying to sort of trip me up with these very odd questions. But anyway, finally I get let through and um, I had to be driven sort of not all the way through to the village um, because at that time my cousin couldn't drive all the way based on his number plates. Oh. So, you know, there's sort of this section that I had to walk alone because they put up checkpoints outside of Halhul and it's sort of for us is like the top of the hill. So if there's checkpoints there, like you can't drive down into the village. And back then as well, like the, the village wasn't as developed as it is now. Like at that time, it was literally a dirt road. And I had no idea of what these checkpoints were, but there were literally just boulders that had been sort of, you know, piled on top of each other to stop you from being able to, to go anywhere or do anything. And there was sometimes there were groom gates, etc. But a lot of the time it was still very makeshift at that time so it was just a very surreal experience to get out of the car and have to kind of walk this way not knowing where the hell I'm going to then end up where I meet my uncle next to this pile of rocks and it was certainly not the sort of not the romantic image yeah exactly growing up of you know coming to Palestine and seeing Kutz and you know all the olive trees and all these sort of as you said like very romantic symbols and notions of what Palestine was and um, so I think that was quite a sort of stark point and, and memory for me in that that was the beginning of my real education if you like to an extent of what it meant to be a Palestinian and what what was actually sort of happening there that was sort of the first introduction to how humiliating this very organized uh, structure is for Palestinians and then I experienced it for for the four months that I was there and lived it um, every time we got on a bus you know at that time they pull you over take your passport sit in their jeep and just sit there for an hour two hours three hours and you literally can do nothing and you're, you're trying to get from I don't know Newtown in Sydney to Bondi for example um, the distance isn't that great but it's this very organized systematic um, 
approach to dehumanizing and just stripping you bare. Other things showing the power, isn't it? Exactly. Um, because they're, they're just kids as well, just sitting there drinking their coffee, smoking, laughing, listening to their music, and then they just come on the bus, throw the passports, you know, on the floor and then, and then jump off and we'll just sort of look at each other like, okay, we can go now. So, you know, that first experience and that first trip was very much marred by what was happening at the time. There's one sort of very particular day where I'd gone to Jerusalem to visit family and we'd stopped in Ramallah to visit a cousin. We stayed the night there. My uncle and I were leaving Ramallah to go back to Hebron that, that morning. At first, we just, we didn't really understand what was going on. But basically, we'd get into, they call them taxis, but they're like minivans where everyone sort of piles in and they have their route. And then you get out and you sort of swap and whatever. And you meet lots of people there. People are very chatty. I've, you know, been yes. invited to many dinners since sitting in, in those vans. <laughs> You know, which is what I love so much about about Palestine just overall. But yeah, so we'd get in and we'd drive a couple of minutes and then they'd say, okay, you have to get out. You have to go down there. I think for most people, they were kind of okay because they they were used to this. But I'm like, what's going on after the three or four taxis? And these are like really, we're talking like a kilometer or two and then we're getting out and having to change. And that's, you know, not normal, especially between Ramallah and Hebron. Like usually there's just one bus you get in the interchange and then you just go straight to Hebron. Um, but anyway, we, we realized that there had been a suicide bombing outside of um, Bethlehem. And so they'd completely shut all the roads down, we're having to take all the back roads. But a lot of the back roads, especially around Ramallah, had sort of checkpoints. So we're having to play this game of this maze that we didn't know the plan for and just had to get in, get out, get in, get out and get to outside of Bethlehem where we're waiting for a taxi. And all of a sudden, this Jeep just comes screeching and almost running into us and and people just sort of scattering like skittles because you just don't know what they're going to do and it's just such a surreal thing to just be standing there waiting for a taxi politely and then this and then they jump out they start yelling things and then they start shooting in the air and I'm just like oh my god this is sort of the first time that I've experienced this um and so I start grabbing my uncle I'm like yalla yalla and you know I start trying to run and he just like puts his very calm hand on my hand and he says to me in Arabic like don't be scared you know we're just gonna walk very calmly and slowly you know and just don't worry I'm just like what does he mean not worry um these people are literally shooting at us and um we end up having to sort of climb over more rubble and then down into this rubbish tip and so I'm walking here and I'm looking around as you know gingerly as I can just to the side because I'm too scared to look behind. And this is the other thing, you know, they're telling you just to keep walking, imshi, imshi, you know, and they're shooting. I don't know if they're shooting in the air just to scare us. I don't know if they're shooting at us. You can't turn around. Everyone seems calm. And I just remember this moment where I'm just like, what is going on? This is not normal, obviously, but it has become normal for these people, for my uncle who's standing next to me. And all we can do is just calmly walk away through a rubbish tip. So again, that was sort of another, I guess, formative experience for me where I started to really understand just the terror and the, the humiliation and the uncertainty, you know, and here's my uncle who works very hard with no, no glass, no, no wind, no sort of closures on his windows. Um, so, you know, it's, um, I really sort of understood what it meant 
to sort of have family and to have community during that time as well. Um, I gained so much from that experience that when I left, I always carried it with me and I always knew that I would come back um, somehow and help. And I enrolled in nursing. I actually wanted to be a doctor and I'd always grown up thinking that I'd be a doctor and I'd go back to Palestine and I would, you know, help ended up looking a bit different. I still hope that I'm helping now, but in a, in a very different way. But, you know, I guess for me, that's my formative experience and, and connection to Palestine. Now you're in, you're back in Sydney. You need a pair of shoes. Yes. So what happens now? <laughs> so fast forward probably a good 10 years or so. I had left nursing and ended up falling into um, finance and particularly insurance. I don't think anyone grows up wanting to work in insurance, but it served me quite well. I learned so much. And I remember always just sort of thinking that I guess my motivation was, has always been to help people and to look after people. And that's why I went into nursing and thought I wanted to be a doctor. Um, you know, I did the nursing thing for for about six, seven years, but um, for me, it's, um, I just burnt out. So I always had in the back of my mind, if I moved into finance and, and got a bit of business experience that maybe one day I could start my own NGO. Um, that's sort of how I was thinking at the time. And um, working in corporate, just, I guess, identified a gap in the market when it came to good quality, comfortable shoes that were made ethically, um, that also maintained a certain level of aesthetic I guess that people like myself working in corporate you know those sort of um, corporate culture dictates that you need to dress a certain way. What's the company called? Bellare. Bellare. And what does Bellare mean? So Bellare means to dance uh, in Italian. I chose that name one because I started off with ballet flats and uh, secondly because I wanted to sort of I wanted the brand to encapsulate how I envisioned a woman being empowered and being free and for me dance is is sort of the ultimate expression of of freedom um and I think especially for women and it's very closely tied to Palestinian culture and how the women come together and how we dance together but also because you know the sort of premise behind Belada is to empower the wearer so that's a woman anywhere in the world and then the profits uh go towards helping to support uh empower a Palestinian woman in Palestine. Oh, fantastic. Good for you. You are an amazing woman. <laughs> we should tell our listeners to go to Balari Dashco. So B A L A R E C O, Balari Dashco. And the website, I mean, one of the things, the very cool things is how transparent you are with your pricing. I mean, you're actually telling people what they cost you and where the money goes and what they retail for and a comparison then to a similarly made yeah. shoe, what they might expect to yeah. pay. And that, that's new. I, I mean, I'm, I'm not a shoe buyer in the sense of, you know, high fashion female footwear, uh, but I, I've certainly never seen anything like that for anything, any male shoes I've ever seen. Well, honesty doesn't really go in retail now. So this, this is a whole new, uh, new thing. So we're going to put a link to um, Balari on the, on the podcast for people to follow. Take us through that transparent pricing model and, and what made okay. you think about um, I think, doing that. I think it just sort of stemmed from my frustration that I, you know, what I, and this was how the shoe ended up coming to, to be born as well, was that I was spending money on uh, shoes that I knew were made in China, probably not necessarily in the most um, ethical or sustainable ways and having to pay a premium for for something that would fall to pieces in a couple of months. 
um, and or conversely, you know, I'd have to pay 500 Australian dollars. Now it's even more for a pair of designer flat shoes that would kill me for months until I wore them in. I just didn't really think that, that was fair. So I had been inspired by another uh, label who had coined the term radical transparency. And so because I was establishing myself as a social business and a social enterprise whereby we would have social impact initiatives attached to the sale of the shoes, it just made sense that I, for me, that I opened the conversation around you know, what is sustainable and ethical fashion and also what is fair. Um, and so that's why it was really important for me to inc include that in the, um, I guess, the business model. And then 50% of all of your profits go to partner organisations. So tell us about some of your partner organisations. Yes. So I started off with ANRUA because at that time I... I, don't, I, I was going to Palestine every few years, so I, I knew it quite well, but I, I was only going to visit family. I'd never had any sort of experience in, in any sort of humanitarian aid or NGOs or that sort of thing. So for me, I was quite nervous around where the money was going. And obviously, as probably you know, most people would know by now, that it's not easy from a financial point of view to get to send funds to Palestine without raising you know, a whole heap of um, rigmarole that goes goes with sending money to Palestine. And that's even if your bank, for example, um, has Palestine on the drop-down menu to send it to. So um, I just wanted to find an organisation that I knew had a history there and um, that I could sort of trust. So I started off with ANROA. However, since, since launching Balare, I have also transitioned careers. So I am now working with the Palestinian Medical Relief Society, and that came about from... A volunteer experience that I had over there now almost two actually two years ago where I spent um, six weeks volunteering with PMRS in Bethlehem and started to understand that side of Palestine a lot more deeply and have since changed how I partner with organizations. So Anura was the first and it was focused on educating Palestinian girls. Um, that's really important to me and uh, since then, I've partnered with PMRS um, for some initiatives around educating girls around their bodies um, and their rights associated with their bodies. And more recently, um, have partnered with the Ida Youth Centre and the Ida Camp um, with the production of masks. Yeah, me too. That's how I ended up volunteering, was actually yeah. through a team in, from Ida Camp called Volunteer Palestine that set me up with, with that. And they've become my second family. Um, they're amazing. So, so yeah, just recently during the COVID times, we um, launched an initiative where we did some fundraising first to get some masks to the people in Ida camp, in particular those with chronic conditions and, and those that were considered the more vulnerable and at high risk because at that time Anurua hadn't responded to, to Ida camp and they had been left essentially bare without any PPE or support from a COVID perspective. Um, and we're talking four months into the breakout and the, and the first case was actually in Bethlehem as well. So um, we devised this campaign to produce masks locally. Um, so we're supporting local industry in Bethlehem, which of course the economy at the moment is really struggling and employment is I think that the unemployment rate is over 65% now and most, I think 60% of Palestinian families are currently living under the poverty line um, since COVID. So that has certainly deteriorated. And so it was really important that we support local industry 
and uh, and then give back to the camp. And now we're selling the masks um, because they're such cool designs. So I partnered with a Palestinian artist. Her name is Narmin Hamza. And uh, we developed a series of designs together. So some are tatris, some have Palestine and olive leaf motive. Um, others have a poppy. And I think there's a Yasmin one that were, or a jasmine flower that we're now selling. So the 100% of profits from those masks is going back into the camp for other initiatives. So for example, we've managed to secure some medication um, for those that are chronically ill for six months because it's really expensive. And also they can only get it from Jerusalem for some particular medication. So we've focused on supporting them from that perspective as well. I've got to say, the Yasmin one is my favorite. So balare-co.com. So B-A-L-L-A-R-E-C-O.com. But the link will be in the podcast, balare-co.com. Thank you so very much, Amir. It's been great speaking to you. You're a wonder. Thank you. Your story is fantastic. Congratulations. Thank you so much. And thank you for, for doing what you're doing and giving a space to people like me to be able to, to talk about these things. I think it's really important. Thank you to 3CR for, for giving people like me a space to tell our story and express ourselves. Fantastic. Thanks so much. Another fantastic Palestinian woman doing fantastic things for Palestine. Amira Nimrawi, thanks so much for all that you do. Don't forget to visit her website, balare co.com the links in the podcast tell your friends to listen to the show share the podcast and remember there's never been a better time to free palestine take care and see you next week